Doing the impossible is not something you make happen. It's something that you allow to happen. After conducting over 10,000 personal and group coaching sessions over the last decade, author and personal coach Jason Dries has unlocked the simple yet effective formula to accept and create success in your life on the most basic, instinctive level. In his latest book, Do the Impossible, Jason gives readers access to the same life-changing principles he provides in his personal coaching sessions. Ready to embrace success as a state of being? In this exclusive listener offer, get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off from the publishers at Bigger Pockets. To get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off any format, go to www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. That's 50% off any format, www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. I want to talk about ShipStation. Look, sometimes you get by doing things the hard way without realizing it. But when you run a business, doing things the hard way means you're holding yourself and your business back. ShipStation gives e-commerce sellers an easier way to manage shipping so you can take all the energy that goes into managing orders, choosing carriers, and printing labels, and use it to grow your business. You're going to save so much energy with this thing. This just puts everything in one basket for you. It works with all your storefronts, Amazon, eBay, Etsy, and more, unless you automate processes like fulfillment and tracking. So you can save time managing orders while keeping customers happy. So look, it's not magic, but it will make your shipping stress disappear. Sign up using promo code Donnie for a free 60-day trial at ShipStation.com and start breathing easy with every shipment. That's two whole months of stress-free shipping, and it's easy to try. Just go to ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, and type in Donnie. ShipStation, make ship happen. I'm baffled by how, by the kind of irrationality of of historical memory. Mm -hmm. There's some people who are like rightfully remembered and others rightfully forgotten, but there's a whole group in the middle who like, there are people who you would think we would worship who have just have disappeared. Yeah. And others who like have persisted and you're like, wait, why? Welcome to On Brand with Donnie Deutsch. I am Donnie Deutsch, and this is the pod. This is the podcast of podcasts, actually. And this is a podcast that's dedicated to a simple premise: that everything, everybody today is a brand. Every personality, every celebrity, every athlete, every company, every product, uh, every institution, everything is a brand. Uh, brand is a set of values, and we do two things on the show. We interview somebody about their own personal brand. Today, we've got the brilliant author Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, you know what else do I need to say other than that? I mean, you buckle in. This is one of the one of the smartest people in the universe. And uh, every book from the tipping point, we're going to talk about his new book. And uh, it's just that uh, he's just a brilliant, brilliant guy. And we do what we call here our brands of the week, which is basically the brands that are shaping who's up, who's down, moving the zeitgeist in one direction or the other. And let's get right to our brands of the week. First up is. Brand, I guess, brand up for Donald Trump. Um, but I'm going to say this with a grain of salt. He, there was CPAC, the, the conservative conference this past weekend, and uh, he drew in the straw poll two-thirds of the votes for favorite Republican presidential candidate in 2024. He got 69% of the votes. DeSantis got 24. This is, of course, the most conservative of the conservatives. They had a uh, Hungarian dictator, Victor, uh, uh, Victor Orban, there speaking. Now, what else do you need to know about that? Uh, an autocrat. That's what they have speaking at their conferences. So um, I don't know what else to say to that other than the interesting thing is DeSantis without Trump would be in first place gaining something like a 65% of the votes. But I'm going to say it again, and I've said it on the show many times, is that I believe 
Trump is his hold is loosening, regardless of what's happening in CPAC, and you're seeing it in many, many ways. We're going to continue to watch that. Okay, a brand of, who who to thunk? Brand of Dick Cheney. Here you go. Called Donald Trump a coward in a new ad supporting his daughter's re-election bid. Former President, Vice President Dick Cheney criticizes the president as a threat to our republic and a coward in a new campaign for his daughter. And this is, quote, in our nation's 246-year history, there has never been an individual who was greater threat to our republic than Donald Trump. He tried to steal the last election, use lies and violence to keep himself in power after the voters had rejected him. And this is Dick Cheney. So I, I thought I'd be living a long life before I'd say brand up for Dick Cheney, but you got to give it to him. He says it like it is here. Brand up for the Democrats in the Senate. They passed a marathon after a marathon debate in a series of amendments and after 14 months negotiating the uh, anti-inflation pact, which is historic climate, health care, and tax bill. Certainly a, a win for the Democrats. You've got to, you know, suddenly they have a little momentum on the generic polls. They seem to be doing uh, relatively well for uh uh, generic polls where you vote for a Democrat or a Republican. And this is going to help them. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know if it, it doesn't have the impact of an Obamacare. It's not a simple bill. As I said, it's climate. It's, uh, it's certain changes in the tax code. It's, it's uh, health care. So there's a lot of good stuff in there and it, it does fight inflation. It takes 700 billion bucks out of the uh, budget while putting in money for other things for the important things, but certainly a win for the Democrats. Brand up for the labor market. It's on fire. Uh, the economy added 528,000 jobs in July. Unemployment rate is, is down to 3.5%. And look, you know, we keep saying doom and gloom about this economy and inflation, but it's red hot everywhere you look. People can't hire fast enough. Um, and if the inflation gets under control, we might have a good few years ahead of us instead of this gloom and boom that everybody's talking about. Now, yes, with interest rates climbing, that is a very dangerous thing and a scary thing. But the labor market's certainly pointing to a different direction. Brand up for my friend Malcolm Gladwell, who's coming on later in the show. Uh, just the other day, he said, what, what have you reduced your life to by basically saying working from home is hurting society? And a recession will lively drive employment who are sitting on their pajamas back in the blink. Coming out very strongly, and I love this, we'll talk about it later on the show, that... Um, Working from home is really going to hurt us. And I believe that. I think people have got to get back to the office. We'll talk more about that. Brand up for credit card debt. It seems the recession fears and price pressures haven't tamed Americans' urge to splurge. Credit cards account for $890 billion of America's staggering $16 trillion in household debt. Um, it's 13% higher than it was a year ago. So people putting using their credit cards. Look, this has a lot to do with pent-up demand, obviously. People have been home. They was, they're stuck with the pandemic. So they're not as afraid to kind of put a little things on the line, if you will. Here's an interesting thing. This one's going to take a couple of minutes. This is brand up for things that millennials are rejecting. There are a bunch of things that I'm talking about that millennials, for different reasons in their makeup, are kind of either abandoning or cutting back on. And millennials, uh, it's really interesting. The wedding industry is one. They haven't totally abandoned the institution, but they're taking a much different approach to their big day. Dairy milk is they're they're moving away from from oat to almond to soy. There are so many non-dairy milk alternatives. Diamonds they're moving away from. Millennials are in the midst of disrupting the diamond industry by opting for unique gemstones or handcrafted options. Cable, as we know, they're not biting on offers for TV subscriptions. Beer. Millennials are refusing to buy all beer. And they're not refusing to buy all beer, but they've developed an affinity for local uh, products, craft beers. Doorbells. <laughs> of all the household standard millennials have thought was actually intentional, millennials have taken to avoiding the ear-piercing, anxiety-inducing ring of a doorbell by texting simple here when they arrive at someone's home. Postcards and souvenirs. Department stores. Uh, cruises. These are things that millennials are rejecting. So not a good future for some of those things. World's 10 biggest companies brand up. For these 10 companies, Fortune Magazine comes out with their Fortune 
global 500 list of the top, the largest companies in the world by revenue. The first is Walmart. Second is Amazon. Third is State Grid from China. Fourth is China National Petroleum. Fifth is Cinepec from China also. Uh, Saudi Aramco is uh, Saudi Arabia is sixth. Apple is seventh. Volkswagen from Germany, of course, is 80. China State Construction Engineering from China. And 10, this is surprising, CVS Health in the US. 10th largest from revenue, biggest company. There you go. So those are, are, are brand up to those companies. Brand down to Beyonce. I love Beyonce, but her new record is, is down dramatically. Um, they're down, her new sale of her new album, Renaissance, is off 60% versus her, her um, launch of Lemonade in 2016. So same period of time, her, her newest album, less almost more than half cut from what her previous sales have been. So that's not good for her. So we'll see. Brand up, we did this last year, Field of Dreams game. That's where the game is in, in Iowa, where there's been a Field of Dreams game, a Field of Dreams, the field built in the middle of a cornfield uh, in Dyersville, Iowa. This year, Chicago Cubs and Cincinnati Reds will play. I think it's great for the game. I think it's amazing, and we love that. Brand up for Aaron Rodgers and psychedelics. Um, he said psychedelics led to his best season and helped him love himself. He says that the secret to his recent NFL dominance is a psychedelic experience in South America claiming the Ayahuza plant helped him improve his mental health and have the best season ever. Uh, it contains DMT, which is used socially and medically for centuries. Uh, Roger says it's not a coincidence. He returned and won his two MVP awards in 20 and 21. Um, very interesting. So Aaron Rodgers and psychedelic drugs. There you go. Brand up for plunge pools. Yes, plunge pools are becoming an altar for homeowners who want a simple, less expensive way to cool off. Typical backyard pools are 15 wide and 15 feet wide and 30 feet long. These are 10 by 20, you know, substantially smaller. We see plunge pools in advertising in resorts and they seem to be sexy. And people are realizing that instead of spending 70 to 100,000, they can spend 40 to 60 and cool off. And because how many people really do laps in pool? They usually do pools to just to jump in and whatnot. So there you go. Uh, something I thankfully have not explored, brand up. Not, not, next subject, not plunge pools. Something I have not explored, men's hair transplants. Men's transplants are flourishing. Business is way up. Um, they say the industry is going to hit $43 billion by 2026. And they said the pandemic gave guys a lot more time to kind of look at themselves in the mirror and the Zoom calls and seeing what they look like on Zoom calls. But it seems that men's hair transplants are having a real surge in growth. Brand down for fast food value meals. Higher prices, skimpier portions and apps, how fast food chains are changing value deals. Here are some things that make me sad. Um, citing rising costs, Domino's PC earlier this year raised the price of its mix and match delivery deal from $5.99 to $6.99. Burger King removed the Whopper from its value menu and trimmed its 10-piece nuggets to eight pieces. Uh, for the first time, Yelp said customers are mentioning shrinkflation in their restaurant reviews. So um, in the years since McDonald's dropped its popular dollar menu and said, Subway hit the brakes on its $5 foot long, experts say the industry has been trying to lessen the reliance on such promotions, but consumers are not happy about it. So there we go. Brand up for mustard-covered donuts. Yes. French has unveiled its mustard-covered donut for National Mustard Day. Yuck. Um, the McCormick, uh, McCormick & Company-owned brand announced a limited-edition French mustard donut in honor of National Mustard Day. The mustard-infused treat is described as a bold, craveable donut that allows mustard lovers to wake up and taste the tang. The limited-edition mustard donut was developed in partnership with the Brooklyn, New York-based Dough Donuts and combines the flavor of French's classic yellow mustards and Dough's brioche recipe. Look, I guess you put mustard on pretzels in Philadelphia. Why not mustard on donuts? 
I love it. Giving it a brand up. Okay, we're doing lists on the show a lot. Brand up for the 10 best places to live in the world based on the Economist Intelligence Units called the Global Livability Index. It ranks the best places to live in the world and scores 172 cities in five categories. Stability, healthcare, culture, entertainment, education, infrastructure. And number one was Vienna, Austria. Number two was Copenhagen. Number three was Calgary. Number three is Zurich. Uh, there was tied Calgary and Zurich. Uh, five is Vancouver. Six is Geneva. Seven is Frankfurt. Eighth, Toronto. Ninth, Amsterdam. Tenth, Melbourne. And also tied for 10th, Osaka, Japan. There you go. Best cities in the world. And finally, brand down for the wee hours in the morning. That's staying late up at night. Scientists say our brains are not meant to be awake after midnight. Researchers from Mass General Research Institute have created a new hypothesis saying the human brain is not meant to be awake after midnight. More for they say staying up late only leads to more impulsive behavior and high-risk decisions, such as drinking, overeating, gambling, and criminal activity. Specifically, researchers suspect that staying awake during the biological night, the middle of the night for most people, causes neurophysiological changes in the brain. That causes people to view the world more negatively than they do during basic daytime. So get to sleep earlier. And those are our brands of the week. Now, you are going to really enjoy my interview with Malcolm Gladwell. Take a listen. That is the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving entrepreneurs the resources once received for big businesses, customized to their needs, with a great-looking online store that brings your idea to life. I'm telling you, if you've got to sell anything online, anything, to anywhere, you want Shopify. It believes in liberating commerce for all because entrepreneurship has the power to drive communities forward and commerce can be a good a force for good. Shopify powers millions of entrepreneurs from first sale to full scale. Every 28 seconds, a small business owner makes their first sale on Shopify. Get started by building and customizing your online store with no coding or design experience. Shopify instantly lets you accept all major payment methods. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility Powered by Shopify. Here's the deal. Go to shopify.com slash Donnie, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial. Get full free access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash Donnie right now. Shopify.com slash Donnie. I am thrilled to have today's guest. I mean, what an absolute treat. Malcolm Gladwell, um, he is, of course, the, the head, has the podcast Revisionist History. His newest book, The Bomber Mafia, A Dream, A Temptation, Longest Night of the Second World War, is now in paperback. He's had five New York Times bestselling books, uh, The Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, What the Dog Saw, and Other Adventures, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, Note of Battling Giants, Talking to Strangers, We Should Know What People We Don't Know. Um, just the best description I've seen of him is a interviewer said he's 21st century's defining zeitgeist surfer. How do we feel about that? Well, it's uh, overly, uh, uh, that, I mean, it's a, a massive overstatement. I'll take it, but I don't think it's true. But I, I'll take I, it. I wouldn't disagree. It's interesting. The whole premise of this uh, podcast is that, you know, kind of everything and everybody's a brand today. You know, every company, every institution, every person. And I thought that was a great, from my vantage point, as a branding guy, I thought it was a great description of your brand. Yeah, I guess. I mean, am I a zeitgeist surfer? I mean, I'm <laughs> not sure I know what that means, but um, I do, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not a writer who's indifferent to the, to the kind of context in which I'm writing. Maybe put it that way. I'm not, you know, writing histories of 14th century right. um, 
you know, English, uh, the English, you know, English monarchy. But um, yeah, I'm, I am attentive to, um, and my tastes tend to kind of track what I feel like the tastes of the moment are. How do you, what, for instance, I love the, to just get the, the inspiration of just, for instance, Tipping Point. Where, where did that, I mean, or Outliers, where does it, I mean, Outliers, where was the first nugget where you go, okay, there's, there's something here? Well, Outliers is kind of funny. It was, um, you know, I've always been, I'd always been fascinated by the fact that so many, I moved to New York City when I'm 30 years old. And I, you know, become familiar with the kind of power structure of New York. And I, I had, as someone who's not Jewish, was struck by the fact that so many of the most important lawyers in the city were Jewish. Right. Which doesn't, you know, if you, if you have, if you're thinking about this naively, there's no obvious reason why they should all be Jewish. They really, when I say they're all Jewish, I mean, it's kind yeah, if I you hear made you. a list. <laughs> I got you. As a Jewish 15, guy in New York, I, I got you, brother. You, you don't have to explain. It's, it's kind of it's kind of nuts, right, right? Right. So I was like, why? And then I started chatting with uh, systematic. I went around and started interviewing a lot of these guys, and I discovered not only are they all Jewish, but their if their resumes, their kind of backgrounds, family histories. We're all insanely familiar. They were all like, they all would, like a huge chunk of them went to City College, mm-hmm. parents in the garment industry. Uh, you know, they, they, none of them came from any kind of like great privilege or their parents weren't intellectuals. Their parents were working class or middle class. They didn't go to fanciest schools. When they went to law school, they went to NYU when it was a commuter school, not when it was a, you know, a, right, not right. the NYU of today. And I just thought the more I investigated this, the more, and you remember, you remember Joe Flom. Sure, of course. J- Joe Flom, so the guy, f- basically the founding partner of Skadden Arps. Yeah, world he, I started with him, went okay. to see Joe. And he was in, you know, he was in his 70s by that point. And just had, a, I was like, Joe, what is going on? And he just like explained it. And that was the first, I think, the first interview I did for Outliers. And the thing about Joe Flom's explanation about why he was the most powerful lawyer in New York is that it had nothing to do with his own intelligence. Now, he's clearly a brilliant guy. Sure. But he, he explained the whole thing without any reference whatsoever to his own personal abilities. And that was where the seed of that book was. And for our listeners, just to explain, what, what did he explain? He said, well, you have to understand the way it was very law-specific, but it was so fascinating. He was like, M&A law in the 50s and 40s was something that no reputable law firm would touch. It was considered disreputable to engage in the buying-selling of companies, right. particularly if the company being bought was not Didn't consenting to, to the right, purchase. Right, right, right. Right. We, so we were in a, gen- we were in a fancy- gentleman's world at that point. right? Exactly. None of the fancy law firms would touch that work. So... If you're Joe Flum and you're like a guy from the Bronx who doesn't look or sound or have the pedigree of any of these fancy lawyers and you want to be a lawyer, you do the stuff that no one else will touch, M&A. Yeah. He gets really good at M&A and lo and behold, what happens? M&A becomes what corporate law is, where all the money is, right? In the 80s and it explodes. And he was like, the fact that we were locked out and discriminated against paradoxically gave us access to allow us to create expertise in the most economically valuable area of the law. So it was like, of course we're all Jews who were went to City College because we were the guys who were doing the most disreputable form of law. Same with litigation. Right. Nobody would, no fancy firm 
would do litigation. Case and White, you think they're doing litigation? Right, you know, right. like beneath them. They're you know, not doing litigation. It's similar. I, I know you wanted to get into advertising your first job. I spent most of my life in advertising. My dad was in advertising. And very similarly, it was Jews and Italians. It was not a business that, you know, the, the high flouting wasps were in. So Jews and Italians were able to get in there. And that's why there were so many Jews and Italians in advertising. It was one of the pro yeah. quote unquote professions, but the door was much more open. But that, those explanations are about, they're about timing as much as any. That's what, I mean, I was so fascinated by timing in Outliers, and it remains a fascination. It's about, it is way, way, way underestimated about the particular set of advantages and disadvantages that come with your kind of generational moment. Yeah. Um, I mean, the hockey one just blows me away. Really fascinating. Oh, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, I'm still interested. Can you now. can you just share share that one with our viewers? I, I know you've gone over this a thousand times, but for my some of my viewers who are not familiar with some of your books, it's just they're just incredible stories. Yeah, this one was this observation that was made by a Canadian psychologist in the 1980s that if you look at the roster of any elite hockey team in Canada, 40 percent of the players or more are born in the first three months of the year, January, February, March massively overrepresented. In some cases, it's actually more than that. And it's a puzzle until you understand, oh, the age cutoff for age-class hockey in Canada is January 1st. And because Canada's so hockey-obsessed, they start recruiting kids for all-star traveling squads at the age of nine. And at the age of nine, the kids that you think, that you look at a group of kids and you say, I'm take the most talented ones. The talented ones are all the oldest ones. Yeah. If you're nine and you're born in January, you've got a 12-month head start. You've lived 15, a 15, you've lived longer to serve. As a guy that was born in November 22nd, I, I grew up with that sports yeah. all year, all, all around as a kid. It's a big difference. Yeah. It's 10, yeah. 15, 20% of your life when there's a year difference when you're seven, eight, nine exactly. years old. Yeah. But the crucial thing, Donnie, is that the people involved in hockey did not recognize, they thought they were rewarding talent when in fact they were rewarding maturity and they were blind to this fact. And by the way, I recently, this year, went back and looked at the roster of the 2022 Canadian National Junior Hockey Team. You know what you discover? If I were to read to the roster, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mimic doing it right now. Here's what it looks like. I'm just going to read you their birth month. Ready? January, January, February, January, <laughs> March, amazing. January, February, December, January. It's the same. They, they haven't fixed the problem. <laughs> Basically, amazing. in a country that's obsessed with hockey, that's trying to to select the most talented group of hockey players imaginable, they have, they continue to leave half the talent on the table. To, to say if you're born in the second half of the year, basically you can forget it. Power blackouts. They happen every year, but guess what, blackouts? You've met your match. Say hello to Goal Zero, the leader in affordable home power backup systems and solar generators. Goal Zero's generators power your fridge, freezer, lights, Wi-Fi, TV, and more with clean power. Their home backup systems, like the Yeti 3000X, have no fuel, no fumes, no noise, and no maintenance. Just good, clean energy that keeps your home up and running. They offer a range of products and affordable price points, from power stations that can provide a half day's worth of power to solar generators and home backup systems that can keep you powered for one, two, or three days. Plus, they're all portable, so you can take your power with you when you go camping, tailgating, and more. So yeah, take that, blackouts. Our power is here to stay. Have peace of mind when blackouts hit. Go to GoalZero.com to learn more. 
That's why I'm always blown away when, when I interview, I've interviewed just so many wonderful authors and whether it's Michael Lewis or Harlan Coben, and I'm just, as, and I'm somebody who comes to the creative world, but I'm just always so fascinated by the nugget. Like what got it, what got it started? What revved that engine to, to make that pe marvelous piece of work happen? I was in the library, NYU library, browsing in the stacks, and I ran across an article from the 1970s from the American Journal of Sociology by a guy who was trying to explain uh, why certain neighborhoods are much worse than others. And he used epidemic theory. He used theory from, used epidemiological theory used to describe the spread of diseases to describe the spread of crime. And I thought, I remember hearing him sitting in Bob's library, you know, fifth floor in the social study, social science section, reading this and thinking, that is so cool. And that was the genesis. I was like, what if I wrote a whole book in which I used epidemiological theory to describe social processes? Yeah, yeah, just in incredible, incredible stuff. I know you're not a political scientist, but I'm just so curious to pick your brains. If you, if, and we're gonna put on the hat as, as 21st century zeitgeist surfer, okay? I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you own that for this. How did we get where mm -hmm. we are now? I mean, it's, if you were going to hypothesize and you were going to work back and it was, ah, this is the Malcolm Gladwell kind of analysis, taking social science, psychology, uh, common sense observation to a place that we're going backwards where 80% of people agree on certain things, yet it doesn't manifest itself in this country when it comes to guns. How we have our Roe v. Wade overturned where most of the country doesn't want that. It, it seemed unthinkable mm -hmm. years ago. Uh, we witnessing a bloody coup, yet 40% uh, of the country to 45% of the country thinks that was okay, don't have an issue with it. Um, how did we get here? I, I, you were similar in age, and I could never remember us it feeling so sober right now. You know, there's, there's 10 good explanations. So I'll offer one, which in no way is definitive and may only contribute 5% of this, but it's one that I don't, I think is under-discussed. You know, we're, for the first time in our history, an old country. If you, look at, if you look at the history of the United States, it has always been a young country driven either by immigration or by large families, high fertility rates. We are suddenly and without precedent an old country. And I think of, when I think of what's going on in America right now- But don't now, when I people challenge that and go, oh, we're 280 years, whatever it is, and yet- uh, not 280, whatever the math is yet, you know, you've got Italy. No, no, I mean, I mean, this, I mean the people, average age okay, of the yeah, Okay, 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 yeah. There, yeah, yeah, no, not no, the age of the country. Okay, okay. The average age of, of, Ameri of an American citizen today is older than it has ever been. Um, Interesting. And uh, we're on, so we're, what we're experiencing is the kind, I think of in some certain sense, is what happens when you're living at that end of the demographic curve. Um, and a lot of, what we're going through are kind of stereotypically old people arguments. Like the kind of argument, if you think about sort of, you know, slightly tongue-in-cheek way, you know, the, the, the idea of the old person who's like, F it, I'm going to say whatever's on my mind because right. I got nothing to lose. Right, right. I mean, yeah, right. that idea that older, you know, as people get old, sometimes they feel like their inhibitions are lowered. Um, because they're, they've, you know, they don't give a fuck. That's it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm exactly. 80 and what are you going to do? Take my job away. I mean, there's, you know, I mean, it's just certain things. That, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in the way we, in the conversation that's going on right now. I, what I was just reading today 
the um, uh, random, uh, just on my lunch hour, I was reading the Dobbs decision. And this, it, that's, when I read that, I'm like, this is a decision written by old men yeah. who are just like, F it. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I care less what has gone on before. Or what, I'm just going to like be kind of crotchety and whether you believe, whether you agree or not, yeah. it just reads as old. And a lot of our rhetoric just reads to me as like, this is like crotchety old people just kind of venting their frustrations with how it wasn't like this in the old days. And we got to like, now that is that, that maybe is that 5% of an explanation? Maybe. But it's there's something interesting there, I think. Now, would that be an inspiration for a book? Would you? Would there be any any as you as you kind of hypothesize that? Is that the? Is that? Is there? A no, of, that's not a book. That's, that's not, a that's a that's a Twitter. Uh, How do you know when you have thread, a book? Is there anything circling around in your mind right now where you're? I mean, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Where you're like, hmm, there, there's something here. Is there anything in the early stages that you've just just some observations you've noticed that may or may not turn into something bigger, but that has just kind of caught your attention? Well, I am in in the beginning stages of a book, um, which I'm happy to talk about. Right. It's, um, I got really interested in Tom Bradley. The mayor of, former um, mayor of uh, Former mayor LA, of Los right? Angeles. First black mayor of LA from 73 to 1993. Um, and with this idea of like, he's a really interesting figure because he's, first of all, he's elected a black mayor of a city where black people are never more than 15% of the total population. It's quite a feat, and especially in 1973. Yeah. And I'm really interested in the kind of compromises that outsiders have to make to, to, to make it within the majority, with the majority, to appeal to the majority. That is a, I don't really know exactly what I want to do with this or where I want to go with this, but there's something in that. Like, so Bradley is famously a guy who you never get the feeling that he's speaking his mind. Mm -hmm. And the reason he's never speaking his mind is that he can't. And that's one of the conditions of his, of his ambition. If he wants to appeal to the white voters of L.A., he can't be himself. Yeah, he's a sharecropper's son from Texas. He's like, he's like not this, you Ur know, urbane, you know, urbane, sophisticated professional. Yeah, right. His mom cleaned houses. Right, right. And here he was trying to become. Uh, mayor of the mo one of the most sophisticated and wealthy cities in the United States, where the politics is run by a very wealthy group of people living on the West Side, right? Like, and think about how hard that is as a purely strategic question. How do you? How? What do you have to do to make that happen? That was just. There's something super interesting in that story. Is there any parallels to our? What? Not parallels. It, it's ironic when you compare that to Trump who basically, it was almost, it's the opposite. It's a complete opposite, you know? I mean, it's exactly. just really oh, fascinating. that interesting? Yeah. Yes, uh, it is. So you have the one guy whose appeal is based on the fact that he speaks his mind, right? Yeah. You always, I always thought, th thought that, you know, the thing about Trump, when people say that, say that he's a liar, I always think that misses the point. Mm -hmm. Actually, the key thing about him is not that he's lying. It's that he may, you know, he massively exaggerates and makes stuff up and whatever. But no, but the the source of his appeal and the basis of his personality is he tells you precisely what, he's gonna what do. is on his mind. Yeah, and, and not exactly. only what's on his mind, 
what he's going to do. Autocrats do that. What he's going I, to, I mean, it's just yeah, like, exactly. if any, you know, I've been yapping on the air about this for three years now, but if anybody could not see it coming that he was not going to leave office, and I always wanted, uh, you know, journalists to ask him that, you know, early on, oh, by the way, are you planning on leaving if you lose? And he would have told, he would have given you the the, yeah. the roadmap right yeah. there. And what's amazing, yeah. it's you you are so right about people missing the truth about the lying and not lying. Because he also talked the way people talked, there was a, people believed, even when he said a lie, oh, but he's talking my language and he understands me and he's just like me and because he curses or he's, he kind of gives the world yeah. a finger. And it was, that was, he was so able to bend the truth because of that, because of his delivery system. Do you have any other yeah, Trump yeah, no, he is. any other Trump observations that just from your vantage point, because he's clearly a pivotal figure in in American history, uh, a villainous one and, and a dastardly one, but still fascinates out of all kind of watching human behavior in my lifetime and understanding why people buy products and do things and behave the mm -hmm. way they do. He's just has so fascinated me in the way he was able to just simplistically just just bend the country to his will. It was stunning to watch. Stunning, stunning. I don't have any, I have only kind of slightly whimsical observations. I don't understand, a lot of him, you know, he he's this, he's a real estate figure. And a lot of the way he sees the world strikes me as very kind of characteristic of a guy who spent his life in real estate. Now, I, I'm not, I'm not dissing people in real estate. Let right. me explain what I mean. Um, what is that he's more transactional than almost anyone else? Completely transactional. That I've met him. Completely transactional. So it's like, it's like, especially, and he, the language of the deal, you know, he famously writes that book, The Art of the Deal, that the real estate deal, the thing about deals in real estate is you do a deal and it's specific to that building and that building can go bankrupt and you can start over again with a new building and a new set of investors and a new bank. These guys just are reborn every business cycle. It doesn't seem to matter. There's, it's not like, you know, if you're a, it's not like the repeat, you know, in other businesses, if you're a lawyer or whatever, or you're a doctor, you're nice to your clients and your patients because yeah. you need them to come back. But the, the real estate guys, it's almost as if like each day is a new day, right? Yeah. It's like they start over all the time. And so he has this, incredibly transactional view of the world where he really doesn't think it matters if he pisses you off. Yeah. Because he thinks, I'll just do another deal and if you guys want to come back in, you can come back in. Right, there's that And along thing. those lines, he is the kind of guy, He's because he, he's kind of like, it, none of it is real. I Nobody who's been more vocal anti-Trump, I mean, I was making Hitler analogies three years ago and whatnot, and we used to be friendly. Yet if he saw me on the street now, he would, there's a real chance he would go, Donnie, what what happened? Why are you doing this, man? Yeah. Like, 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 not, like, in other words, he's just completely transactional and just completely, if he thought something, he could get something from me. It would, there's none of it. Like, the irony is everybody holds grudges. He holds, yes, he does. But but yet he's able to just completely pivot and under, like, just move on to the next thing. Yeah. I have a friend in, a friend whose dad's in the real estate business in New York, knew Trump well. They go back forever. Trump's like, let's have lunch to his guy's dad. They have lunch, really fun, telling old stories. You know, they're wherever they are in Midtown. And at the end says, Donald's, Donald's like, it's great to see you. Oh, by the way, that building you're building on, you know, Lex or whatever, I'm suing you over yeah. that. It's like, and then, <laughs> you know, it. it's like, and then he goes, 
you know, go, they go back and they have lunch again in like it's two him. weeks. That's same thing. That, it's the same. That's <laughs> it's him. like business is business, but like... It is. Yeah. Let's shift gears for He's a second. A Bomber Mafia out in uh, paperback. Tale of kind of yeah. two generals. Is that oversimplifying it? I mean, obviously, no, obviously it's, it's oversimplifying. I mean, Curtis LeMay, yeah, yeah. but I mean, it, it's a fascinating, fascinating story. Give us a little top line. So there's a group of guys, the Bomber Mafia, this group of, of kind of renegade pilots who are, uh, in the 1930s, they're in, the Air Force is still within the Army. And they think the future of warfare is about the airplane. And the, Army, the U.S. Army in the 1930s thinks the future of warfare is basically the horse. <laughs> so right. they're getting very frustrated. And they decide they're going to get as far away from, from military headquarters as possible. And they decamp en masse to uh, Montgomery, Alabama, to Maxwell, what is now Maxwell Air Force Base, mm-hmm. what is then Maxwell Field, so they can basically hide from the military brass. And while in Maxwell, they develop this, this in- incredibly imaginative, far-fetched, technologically focused theory about how to wage war, based in where they think that the only thing that will matter in the future in war is the bomber. If you can drop bombs from position, from with precision from 25,000 feet. They think every other aspect of modern war will become obsolete. So they, they're convinced they've got the holy grail for fighting modern wars down in Alabama. And when the Second World War breaks out, they bring this fantasy to and try and bring it into reality. They take over all the major positions in the, in the, in the Air Corps and try first in Europe and then in Japan to fight war the, war the way they dreamt it up in Montgomery in the 1930s. And they fail. And the leading practitioners of the Bomber Mafia run into this extraordinary character called Curtis LeMay, who is in every way the antithesis of their notion about how war should be fought. People and forget so, he ran for vice president with George Wallace. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he was like... What a frightening figure. He was, <laughs> a, he was, he's like a... He's basically... I mean, there was a figure in Dr. Strangelove based yes, on yes, Curtis LeMay. Yes, yes, yes. He was kind of... So we have, I have, my book is about this clash between Haywood Hansel, who was the embodiment of the Bonner Mafia, this urbane, sophisticated, dreamy, brilliant uh, guy, and Curtis LeMay, who was this kind of hard-bitten, you know, man of few words, completely fearless, bloodless, you know, bullheaded, cigar-smoking. Hansel used to sing Broadway tunes to his crew as he flew back from bombing missions over Europe. Curtis LeMay was famous for like, you know, never saying a word to anyone. Right. They couldn't be more... It's a beautiful set of characters to structure a narrative around. And the Bonner Mafia is the story of basically their their relationship, their... how they clashed and who won in the end. Yeah. Um, And what's interesting about it is there is empathy for both characters. You you could you could argue mm-hmm. and you could you could choose your hero in that one in a weird way. Yeah, I have enormous amount of. I mean, in certain ways, Curtis May, May is terrifying, and the other, but in there also, you were they still alive? You could find thousands of airmen from the Second World War who would say he was the greatest combat commander um, of the 20th century, and they would not be wrong. Yeah. What do you read? What do I read? What's your, well, what's your read, kind of, what's your, what's some books read of choice? Of, read, 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 you know, mystery, a lot of mysteries, a uh-huh. lot of uh, spy stories, and then a lot of sort of nerdy, you know, I mentioned that Tom Bradley thing I'm interested in. I've been reading a lot of books about 
60s, like uh, uh, because of race in the 60s, for example, um, you know who I'm really interested in the moment is Dick Gregory. Right. He hasn't Dick gotten Gregory. his due in, in the scheme I'm of civil so, rights. So glad you said yeah. that. Or his due as a performer. Yeah. He's basically, you take Dave Chappelle, magnify his audience by a factor of 10, and then merge him with Martin Luther King, and we're getting close to Dick Gregory. Yeah. Dick Gregory had the most insane life. I'm so bummed I never got to meet him because he only died, like, I think two years ago. Yeah. Um, incredible life. He was so big in the 60s. He was like, when I say he's 10 times Dave Chappelle, I mean that. I mean... Do you know how many copies of his autobiography he sold in hardcover? Eight million. Explain to me as somebody who observes the media and observes, sorry. Yeah. So how has he not found his rightful place in the historical zeitgeist of the civil rights movement and as an entertainer? He does does not. I don't. By the way, I, you could probably talk to most people under the age of 40 and they wouldn't even know who Dick Gregory is. I know. I don't know. This is a, a question, actually, you would be far better positioned to answer than me. Why? I'm baffled by how, by the kind of irrationality of, of historical memory. Mm -hmm. There's some people who are like rightfully remembered and others rightfully forgotten, but there's a whole group in the middle who like, there are people who you would think we would worship who have just have disappeared. Yeah. And others who like have persisted and you're like, wait, why? Why are we still talking about this person? My only explanation would be some have a better, you would be better with a story that can be told. Is that, that is, you wonder would yeah. would Martin Luther King have his place in history if he was not assassinated? Because it was became a big part of the story. Uh, yeah, and we could give a hundred different examples of that. And you know, uh, it it's interesting. Even Bill Cosby. I watched the recent documentary, a really good documentary, and you know they highlight so much of his work in civil rights and his work for you know moving the black movement forward in certain ways, which never would have come forward except for his heinous acts as a predator. Mm -hmm. And you go, that's part of yeah. it. So, so maybe he'll get like, and you just you go with Gregory. What was the personal story that kind of went along with it that would have made him more attractive to writers and and. Uh, biographers, and I, I don't know if the right person at the right time had done the right biography on him. We might not having this. Mm -hmm. Might be having this discussion. He, you know, who I can, would compare Dick Gregory to? Mort Saul. This might seem a little far fetched. What's that? Mort Saul. Mort Saul. No, no, no. I'm going to jump outside of comedy. I the same puzzle. We did an audio project on Paul Simon called Miracle and Wonder. Great an audio, fascinating audio story. Book. Fascinating story. Uh, and I, th I have the same question. To my mind, it's and I'm biased because I love his music, but I think Paul Simon is, if you want to make a... One of the great songwriters of, top, of our time. Yeah, without question. Our time. Without question. Without question. Top five yeah. in the 20th century. And yet, you know, he can walk down the street. He can't, you know, Mick Jagger would get a thousand times more kind of... Anonymous. Um, than he, Paul Simon he, he would walk in New York City, right? And even in New York City, and 95% of the people wouldn't recognize him. 100% and right. So why, I think this is this is analogous to Dick Gregory. And what both of them, Paul Simon and Dick Gregory have in common is they they're, they have too many, um, 
They come in too many shapes and sizes. Mm -hmm. They did too many things. Paul Simon is a folk musician, but he also does, he also did like, you know, in events like world music, he does rock and roll. He does, he's not- He was part of Simon Garfunkel and that did, was a huge part of his identity. Yeah. And so there, you know. He, he does, it's too complicated. And Dick Gregory's the same way. It's too complicated. He's a comedian. He's a brilliant writer. He's an incredible athlete. At one point he runs across country. He was on the forefront of a certain kind of civil rights activism. It's just like, if he just did one thing, maybe it would be easier. Like, I choose a Dave Chappelle compa comparison. Dave Chappelle does one thing. Yeah. He is a preeminent comic. D he's not trying to do five things. Yeah. And that, I think it's confusing. We don't know where to put people like Paul Simon and, and, and Dick Gregory. Any other examples you can think of like that? Of course, it's fascinating. Uh, who, have these, the, who have these unexpectedly complicated narratives. Well, the other... There's a dovetailing group of people who, whose um, dominant characteristic is their longevity as opposed to their peak performance. So I would say, I'm a little bit of a baseball fan, but not a massive baseball fan. If you look closely at baseball, it's really hard, I think, to come to any conclusion other than Hank Aaron is the greatest baseball player of all time. You could give an argument. He's, he's basically in the conversation as the best player in the sport for 20 years. It's insane. And go back and look at his statistics. Once his home run record was like, broken, he's not, he's kind of not in the conversation. He just kind of like, yeah. We, and we're so in love with these people who have these kind of five year windows when they're great. Right. Hank Aaron was great for two decades. Same with Wilt. Wilt's around forever. Not Wilt, I'm sorry, Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Right. Kareem Abdul Jabbar is like, if you look at his career, you're like, he was actually a le one of the legit greatest players in the NBA well, most, when he was you were, 40. With most people of knowledge would put him in the top three in this way, would put yes. him in one, two, yes. or three. He's less neglected so Aaron gets, and I think with Aaron, the reason is a combination of a few things. Spending his, most of his career in Milwaukee, uh, and, yeah. you know, they, obviously we didn't have, Milwaukee wasn't on national TV games. Then Atlanta, he had a very unimposing personality. Um, yeah. And he was one of these guys that, put up the stats without without any fanfare and without the even Willie Mays with the colorfulness of Willie Mays and uh, and uh, the style it's a little bit of that we can people make it just purely on substance in in our society now as far as these epic figures do you need that secret sauce that style on top of the substance is substance enough and that's maybe the Hank Aaron story yeah no that's yeah i think that's but it's a, it's the same general category as these other ones we're talking about because these are people we use personality and charisma as a as a sorting mechanism. Like we like that because we feel that overlaps with greatness, and we're responding not just to someone's work, but also the kind of uh, the amount of heat that surrounds the work. That's the way in which we locate greatness. And if someone doesn't bring the heat in the same way, it just leaves us confused. Like, what am I supposed to do with Hank Aaron? Like. He wasn't this kind of like transcendent personality. Uh, he's just quietly putting up monster numbers year after year in a place, a city I never see on television. Yeah. Right, it's true. It's like, Speak, that's the problem. Speaking of heat, I'm curious your, if there's any nuggets. So much of what you've always done has been on how things influence other things or how people influence other people. And that word now, influencer, and social media, and how we could, we have a world now where somebody can go from being an ordinary nothing, I don't want to say nothing, it's a terrible word, just an ordinary anonymous person with really no skill, 
particular talent usually is what, and all of a sudden have a hundred million people literally and figuratively following what they do and literally and figuratively yeah. being influenced by what they do. And I'm yeah. curious as we're, we're still at the, obviously the embryonic stage of this, but your early thoughts on what, where you might, what, what kind of, you know, sofas you might peek under here. Well, part of me kind of thinks this is great because it's cracking open. These kinds of social hierarchies used to be very narrow and closely guarded and um, and now they've just been broken wide open. Right. And, you know, we used to all share the same um, kind of celebrity list and now everyone's got their own, yeah. which I think is kind of great. Yeah. Um, you know, the... So I don't really, and also, you know, what these, what influencers today are being heralded for is their taste. And taste has always been a kind of ineffable those are, thing. Those are certain, there's a certain style, you know, the fashion influencers, but there were just so many people who are TikTok celebrities and true celebrities. You know, if I went out with my 14-year-old yeah. daughter and... Charlie D'Amelio was on the beach and Madonna was on the beach. She wouldn't even know who Madonna was. You know what I mean? And it's truly a new definition of celebrity. Do you even know who Charlie D'Amelio is? Okay, yeah. I mean, she's no, just yeah. one of these people, <laughs> 50 million followers on TikTok. And she started just by doing funny little dances. You know, nothing more, nothing. You just, and, and yeah. I would love to understand, to layer in the tipping point and in the world of social media, in what, what kind of tips there and what, what makes yeah. what makes that kind of epidemic happen for certain people? Because there is there doesn't seem to be a rhyme or explanation to why all of a sudden you wake up one day and somebody versus there were a thousand other or ten thousand other young fifteen year old girls taking little pictures of themselves dancing around, but somebody pops and and well, it's a it's a different kind of celebrity. So the thing that's always puzzled me is to talk about music again you know this if you look at the 15 top 15 highest grossing acts in rock music popular music 10 of them will be people who are who have been around for 30 or 35 yeah. years rolling stones routinely are still Paul the McCartney, biggest rock band to uh, yeah. Stone, Springsteen, uh, that Aerosmith. I mean, that's who still fills up arenas. Yeah, it's, it's it's true. Yeah, and so music has gone has moved from one kind of system where a group of people um, came up over a relatively long period of time and formed an enduring um, contract uh, 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 connection with their audience that would last decades. And now we have a form of celebrity which happens much more quickly. But I really wonder, is it going to endure in the same way? Like, so what we've seen in music is there really is, you know, a star on the level of Madonna or Rolling Stones has not been produced really mm -hmm. in music for an awful long time, right? Nothing like the... So we've, we're moving to a different model, something that's a lot kind of, um, maybe has a, a much shorter duration. Mm -hmm. And forms a much um, a much more attenuated emotional bond with the audience. So I was thinking about this the other day. I've been watching on Hulu, um, The Old Man, this show uh, with uh, with John Lithgow and um, I heard it's great. Jeff Bridges. I heard it's great. It's fantastic. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, I go back with Jeff Bridges 30 years, yeah. as do 
I sure. mean, he's been an enduring part of my culture. Jagged kind Edge. Of Remember the Jagged Edge? What a great movie. It's like, yeah. He's like, goes, and I really wonder that's a model that of, of, um, of public celebrity that is being pushed aside in, in favor of this other model. I don't know. Well, we don't know yet. We don't know yet. You take, let's just say, I'm not talking about just, I'm talking about, let's say, musical acts. You take a Harry Style or a Machine Gun Kelly. Right now, they are building up, they sell out arenas, they sell out the garden, they're building one. The question is, will they have the staying power? They're not ones who, yeah. they, they're just today's younger artists. I'm talking about the people that, and they, and Harry Styles probably has 20 million followers because he's a, he's a very talented young musician. Will he have staring power? That's obviously a million dollar question. I'm talking about these other critters out there and these other characters out there that are, oh yeah, I see what you're saying. that are just, famous for being on social media and for having a social media following. And then that begets that, begets, begets that. And that, that's the, those are the critters I'm curious to see what happens. And people that you yeah. don't even know who are, who basically will get paid a half a million dollars to just post them drinking a drink. You know what I mean? And, and, yeah. and just, and they have no other fame other than the, the accumulation of their followers. So it's 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 yeah. the reverse kind of thing that oh somebody's incredibly talented therefore they get a large following versus the, there's the pyramids upside down now somehow this large following happens and you because of no apparent talent I I know better than you at explaining <laughs> that phenomenon <laughs> Hey let's talk about the podcast it's been going on for the last 6 years tell me about this season This season is all about um experiments every episode more or less is some discussion of an experiment. So uh, I have, the first two episodes are about magic wand experiments. I have this idea that every scientist must have in the back of their heads an experiment they would love to do but can't. For whatever reason, the laws of nature, ethics, not enough money, right. can't get it approved. So I said, if I call them up, wouldn't it be cool to find out what this fantasy experiment was? So it turns out that's true. So I just call people up basically at random and I collected five of the most interesting of those magic wands. And then I have an episode that's about my own magic wand, which is involves Akron, Ohio and all kinds of complicated nonsense. And then um, I have another three episodes on this incredibly cool thing. The last three episodes of the season are about something called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment, which was in the Second World War, uh, the country's leading nutritionist, a guy named Ansel Keys, realizes that we don't know, there are all, millions of people are malnourished in Europe because of the war. We don't know how to revive them. We don't know how to feed them, what to feed them, what schedule to feed them on. We don't know what's going on with them as they're malnourished. Are they... So he gathers 36 volunteers. He puts them under the football stadium at the University of Minnesota. And they're there for a year. And for six months of those years, for that, of that year, he starves them. He, they, they lose, they go down to, they're like skeletons. They look right. like they're, they're concentration out, camps, right. And he records every single aspect of their decline. And then he tries to bring them back to health in the last three months of the year. And the, the survivors themselves, the subjects, left a box of tapes with the Library of Congress that no one had ever listened to until we came along where they gave their testimony about what happened. And we use those tapes as the basis for three episodes on um, uh, that I think are as strong as three episodes I've ever done. It's an incredibly powerful and moving story. And uh, ultimately, it comes down to sacrifice and how 
I was, I kept coming back to the fact that if you talk to medical ethicists today, they were appalled by this experiment. But um, I wonder whether that's um, the right way to interpret it. What was the net-net? Because I, I haven't listened to it yet. We learned, the net-net was we, well, they're not out, they're not out until the end of the, they won't be out until um, September. Okay, that's, but that's why I The net-net is that we learned something that helped us save and help millions of people. So these guys were soldiers. And what was, they, what was learned in there? What, was, what, was, what were the nuggets? What I, I know it's all the stuff I've talked about. What happens, we, in 1943, we had no idea what somebody went through when they were deprived of sufficient calories for six months. So what happens to your psychological health? Right. Uh, what happens to your attitudes about food? What happens to your intellectual ca capabilities? What happens to your, all those kinds of things. We had no clue. Um, those are, by the way, continue to be of crude, those quite, the answers he came up with to those questions continue to be of enormous importance to the way we understand and treat anorexia, for example, yeah. or eating disorders. Yeah. We're still drawing on knowledge from that experiment 80 years later. It's sort of incredible. And then there's the question of how to, like I said, how do I revive you? Do I feed you carbohydrates or protein yeah. or does it not matter? Yeah. Does it, should I start you slowly or feed you a lot of food at once? Yeah. How much, you know, on and on. Yeah. There's millions of technical well, questions. Well, the, quite, the real implication would be as we, as third world countries with starvation issues and, and hunger issues, once we can start to fix that, what is the, correct protocol, for lack of a better word, in terms yeah. of... Yeah, but there was, there was this issue when they, you know, an, 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 a tragically large number of people who were liberated from the concentration camps in Europe died after liberation because they were fed improperly. They were overfed. Wow. And their bodies basically collapsed wow. as a result. These are crucial questions. That's amazing. But I, I sort of mounted a fence of these experiments, which to our modern era sound indefensible. Yeah. Why would we put people through that? And I say there's a reason. Malcolm, I could talk to you all day long. You are one of the most fascinating minds in the world. I'd love to climb inside your head one day. I'm sure it's just like, bing, 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 bing. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on in there. The podcast is Revisionist History. Uh, the new book out in paper, not the, with the, the new paperback version of the Bomber Mafia Dream, Temptation, Longest Night of the Second World War. One of our great thinkers. Thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate it. Thank you, Donnie. That was really fun. Good, man. You stay well, okay? You too. Keep up the good stuff. Hope you enjoyed today's uh, podcast and our interview with Malcolm Gladwell. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, anyplace else. You can watch our videos on um, YouTube, download them, and also leave your comments. And have a great week. We'll see you next week, or we'll listen to you next week on our way. Power blackouts. They happen every year, but guess what, blackouts? You've met your match. Say hello to Goal Zero, the leader in affordable home power backup systems and solar generators. Goal Zero's generators power your fridge, freezer, lights, Wi-Fi, TV, and more with clean power. Their home backup systems, like the Yeti 3000X, have no fuel, no fumes, no noise, and no maintenance. Just good, clean energy that keeps your home up and running. They offer a range of products and affordable price points, from power stations that can provide a half day's worth of power to solar generators and home backup systems that can keep you powered for one, two, or three days. Plus, they're all portable, so you can take your power with you when you go camping, tailgating, and more. So yeah, take that, blackouts. Our power is here to stay. Have peace of mind when blackouts hit. Go to GoalZero.com to learn more.
Hi, this is Jim Jeffries. I have a podcast out called I Don't Know About That. Each episode is a different subject. We bring an expert on and I say everything I think I know about that subject and then they correct me. Join in, listen to the podcast, you'll have a laugh and you might learn something. Follow, rate and review I Don't Know About That with Jim Jeffries. Now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. You can also catch video releases each week on YouTube.